Tonight we're going to resume our study in the book of Acts chapter 4. And I think we're going to jump in at uh, verse 32. And we'll cover 32 through 37 tonight. <clears throat> So we spent quite a bit of time last time we were together discussing the fact that the community of believers were of one accord. They were of one mind, one mindset. They had one focus. And they were in such a high level of unity that quite honestly they functioned better than most families we see today. Here on earth we look at the family structure there's a lot of distance between relatives. We don't see that here. And that they, act, they behave like a family because they are a family. They're, they're the new church. They're the family of God. They're, they're the family of Christ, the bride of Christ. And this week, we're going to talk about genuine Christian community being presented in this chapter as involving both mission and mutual support or fellowship. Um, these occur basically because the people care about one another. They love one another, and they're trying to fill those commandments that the Lord left us with. And something that you really need to think about, such community here is experienced when, when the grace of God is powerfully at work in the teaching of the gospel through the Holy Spirit, and Luke highlights this community of Jerusalem believers in three different points. One is this unity, unity around a common purpose. The second one, the continuing ministry of the apostles who proclaim the risen Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem and who together with all the believers, they're enjoying the blessing of God. And the third one is the common ownership of possessions that represents the idea of a society in where there are no poverty-stricken people. There are no needy. There are no poor. And as we unpack these verses, I want you to try and, try and focus on the thought of what would a community be like with no poor people. No one has needs not necessarily that anyone's wealthy, but everyone has what they need. There's no poor there. Think about that. You can't drive down the road. There are poor people that need help in many different ways. This community of believers, there are none there. They're taking care of one another. And that'll be a theme of, of what we're going to speak about tonight. So, if you will, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one was saying that any of his possessions was his own, but for them everything was common. And with great power the apostles were bearing witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, 
and great grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, and that means he was born in Cyprus, okay, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a field, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way you bless us. We thank you for all that you do for us. And we ask at this time that this service be held in your will and that your will will go forward. We want Christ to be glorified. We want your word to go forth. We ask you, Lord, just to edify us. Father, we thank you for all that you do for us, for all that you provided for us, and most of all for Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. And all God's children said, Amen. Neither, I don't feel like I'm prepared when I come and do this. And I don't, I don't feel comfortable doing it. Is that normal? Okay. Carry on. Verse 32, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one was saying that any of his possessions was his own, but for them everything was common. The believers are united in their convictions, and they're committed to witnessing to the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're of one heart and soul. One heart and soul. I had to stop and I had to ask myself exactly what does it mean to be one heart and soul. I remember a song back in my high school days that had some of that in it, but I don't think Huey Lewis and the News is what we're looking for here. So what does this statement mean? There are a variety of opinions on this question. One opinion that, that I came across which has truth in it is when we talk about one heart and soul, we're talking about a personal identity. Personal identity. He was an electrician like his father, and he put his heart and soul into it. He loved those race cars with his heart and soul. It's a personal identity, and there's some truth in that. Another opinion is a vital center of a human being. Your heart and your soul. Right? This vital center is a center of human emotion. Your heart and soul, your emotions are generated. When you're upset, it's here, right? When you laugh, it comes from here. Your heart and soul, that's, that's, it's, it's tied to your emotions. And those are all true. Your heart and your soul, that's a place of cognition. It's a place of memory, a place of thought. A place of understanding, a place of attention. Your heart and soul is a driving force behind your endeavors. He was going to walk a million miles before he died. And he put his heart and soul into it. I made that up, by the way. 
But your heart and soul is, is the way you measure your engagement. It's a measure of your enthusiasm. It's a measure of effort even. But the heart and soul we're talking about here, this is that realm of relationship between you and Jesus Christ. This heart and soul, this is where your salvation resides. If, if there's a way for it to reside inside of you, it's in your heart and it's in your soul. Your union with Christ is in your heart and soul. I believe this with all my heart and soul because of my relationship that I have, the salvation that I possess. And I believe this is true. There's a lot of definitions for words. But when you put them in the context of the Bible, and it's used in the way it is here in verse 32, you realize that your heart and soul is connected to one who's much higher than we are. One who's sovereign. One who loved us before we loved him. It's where your heart and soul resides. Jeremiah the prophet, he used this language. In 32, 39 it states, And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. Jeremiah 32, 30, I will give them one heart and one way. It's going to be one focus. And he goes on to say, that they may fear me always. What is fear? Isn't that the beginning of something? That like the beginning of wisdom? This is more than a fellowship of friends. This is, this is a community of like-minded people that are willing to die for what they believe in. This is an enterprise of divine character, if you, if you will. <coughs> And they go so far in their belief and their dedication, they do not believe they really own anything. They believe that God owns everything. And they probably struck that out of Psalm 50. If you start at verse 10, it says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. Mine is capitalized in my Bible. That's a reference to God. And the idea that a group this large could possibly be of one heart and soul is almost unheard of after a few days or weeks. I know it's taken us a little bit of time to get into the end of chapter 4, but when you think about the scale of what the book of Acts is teaching us, this is maybe a couple of weeks since Pentecost. And there are tens of thousands in numbers by this point. And they're all of one mind. They're all of one focus. Outside of the will of God, you couldn't make that happen if you had to. You couldn't put ten people together that agreed on everything. Let alone ten thousand. But with, with God, all things are possible. With the Holy Spirit... 
Everyone has this focus. Verse 33 tells us what the focus is. It says, And with great power the apostles were bearing witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them with great power. This great power is a power generated within them by being filled with the Holy Spirit. This great power is a gift. It's freely given. It's freely given by the Holy Spirit. This great power enables their speaking and their preaching to be bold and clear and precise. It enables them to stand before the Sanhedrin and present the gospel. This great power performs the miraculous signs and wonders that have been used as doorways to present the gospel of Christ. And we'll talk more about that in just a little while. This, this great power regenerates the community of believers' hearts so that they turn from their self-centered ways and they begin to have a spirit of giving and sharing. They care for one another in a way different than they did before. Bearing witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great power. The apostles were bearing witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And even though the Sanhedrin had commanded them that no more speaking or teaching in the name of Jesus Christ was going to be tolerated, they were even threatened. And I can only imagine that they were threatened to the point of crucifixion just like Christ was. Do not preach in this name anymore. And Peter and John had to look at them and say, we can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. I hear what you're saying. I understand that you may beat me. I understand that you will mock me. I understand that you may kill me. But we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. They cannot stop spreading the gospel of Christ. This message will continue to go forth. A little Greek note here. This particular phrase is written in the imperfect tense. Which means it's a continuous act. Or a repetitive act. And it's going to go on and on and on. Even the tense used by the writer tells us that they're not going to stop. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the major emphasis of the apostles' preaching and their teaching. <clears throat> they knew that continuing to spread the gospel of Jesus was going to be an offense to the Jewish authorities, to the Sanhedrin. They also knew that offending people who do not believe in Jesus was a necessary part of spreading the gospel. You spread the gospel, you go out and you witness, you have these opportunities to speak to people, and you share the gospel with them. And granted, there are some people who will feel sorrow. There are some people whom the message will absorb into. There are some people that will repent and they will believe. And there are some people that they won't. And they will be offended. And their hearts will harden. And all of this is a product of evangelism. 
someday when the scrolls are all opened and our life's history is laid out before us. Did you accept him or not? Well, I, 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 I didn't know. I, and there, here's, a, here's a, a recording of him sitting in the church and Josh giving a message on the cross of them standing on a street corner and someone talking to them about the Lord Jesus Christ. They can't say I don't know in that day. I kind of imagine it being like a video screen comes up and here's your life. Here's all the opportunities you had to receive him. And you said no over and over again. The responsibility of man So this new church would not stop the bold preaching and teaching of the gospel of Jesus. It just wasn't going to happen. <clears throat> They're not going to stop. They're going to continue on. It continues on today. And then again, you can look around the community, and we're really waiting for some churches to start preaching the gospel of Christ. Great grace is mentioned here. And what is grace? So I've got this dictionary. It's a reproduction of the 1828 Noah Webster's original dictionary. It's not an actual original one. It's a reproduction of it. And it's, it's so interesting to compare the Webster's dictionary of today to the one that Noah originally wrote. Because when you look up the word grace... In the new dictionary, you have to read through about eight different definitions before you get to one that really has anything at all to do with religion, period, let alone Christianity or God. But when you go to the one that Noah Webster originally wrote in 1828, the first definition says this, favor, goodwill, kindness, and disposition to oblige another. And that's true. Anything that I do to try and be courteous to someone is showing them grace, and these are definitions that fit that, that action. But the next three definitions for grace all have to do with God. Free, unmerited love and favor of God, the spring and source of all the benefits men, men receive from him. That's the second definition in that original dictionary. Third one, favorable influence of God, divine influence of the Spirit. And the fourth one is the application of Christ's righteousness to the sinner. And I've really done some reading of late about Christ's righteousness being imputed to a sinner. Because we, we hear a lot of teaching and preaching and, and even in my prayer a few minutes ago, thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving my sins. Thank you for Christ dying that my sins can be forgiven. And that's all true and amen. But there's another part of this that not only when God looks upon me now, he doesn't just see a clean slate. He doesn't just see white instead of crimson. He doesn't just see someone who's without sin. 
He sees the righteousness of Christ. When he looks at a wretch like me, the stuff that I have done in my life, and he looks at me and sees Jesus Christ, it just makes me want to say hallelujah over and over and over again. And that's a word that I just don't commonly use. But thank you. Thank you. And we know from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 8, very common. We talk about it with regularity that we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace through faith. Without any meritorious deeds. If you're here tonight and you're saved, you did absolutely nothing to earn that. Nothing. Your righteousness is as filthy rags, is what the book of Isaiah tells us. Numerous places we can talk about, there are none righteous, no, not one. No meritorious deeds. There are none good. But all good things come from God. So this community of believers is... Showing one another a lower form of grace in the way that they're giving, the way that they're treating one another. But the grace referred to in verse 33 is from God. The next four verses after this give us a description of what God's great grace can do. Because we're about to see the giving nature that each believer had toward one another. We simultaneously see the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus being preached continually. And what does the general public see? They see the grace displayed by the people of this believing community. And they have to be asking questions like, why? Okay, that bunch that follows Peter over here, they're a little bit of a homely looking crowd. But man, they're tight knit. They love one another. They're having each other over for dinner. They're sharing in their goods. They're never arguing. They're, they're like-minded. They're in unity, one accord, heart and soul, right? And they have to inquire what it is that these people are doing that your poor have no needs. Was a beggar at the gate called Beautiful? He somehow got healed. He went in the temple with these two guys, and they came out with 5,000 people following them. Right? Giving and being supportive of the needy is a witness for everyone to see. Everyone. In all reality, this is what happened with the lame beggar. He was helped. Everyone saw what happened. They wanted to be a part of the work. 5,000 people believed. It was a witness. It was a call. It was an example for people to behold. The believers have become the people that Peter speaks about in 1 Peter 3.15, which, yes, that's one of my favorite verses. I'm sorry. 
But it tells us that we should live our life in such a way that people come asking us, what is it that gives you so much hope? All the struggle, all the strain of the life, I see the things that you're going through, and yet you maintain this hope somehow. What is it you've got that I ain't got? What kind of drugs are you on? Well, the door just opened for the grace of God to be shared. The door just opened for the gospel to be told. The door just opened for you to share with that person. And it don't have to be a sermon. You don't have to stand behind a pulpit. All you have to do is tell them what Christ has done for you. Look, I was a sinner. I was living my life any way I wanted to. Christ died for me. I don't live that way anymore. He loved me enough to die for me. I'm going to live for him now. That's what this verse is all about. Anytime you're asked this question, if you can live your life in such a way that people come and ask you this, they're asking you to share the gospel with them, whether they know it or not. What is that hope I've got? Well, let me introduce you to Jesus Christ. And we know this method works, right? Here in Acts chapter 4, the people are displaying their hope. They're boldly defending what they believe. And the people are coming to Christ by the thousands. This works. Verse 34 and 35, For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. The true Christian desires to give generously. It shows hospitality. It shares with those in need. This is a life lived for God and for neighbor. Matthew chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. Mark chapter 12. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Old Testament, New Testament. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The desire to give rises up as a response of the indescribable gratitude that develops within one after they've been regenerated, after they've been saved. The Holy Spirit moves in and there's not room for that old man anymore. After we're born again, we are only then able to recognize the perfect gifts that God has given us. And we must show our gratitude. The care and concern for one another in this community will continue throughout the New Testament. Romans 15, Galatians 2, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 9, and there are more. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, explains their state of being very well. And I'm going to go through these three verses. And I'm going to go through them kind of quick. And then I'm going to come back through them and go them through. Because this, Paul, Paul sometimes writes things that are hard for a simpleton like me to understand. He sometimes writes sentences that are this long. And you have to take little breaks in there and say, okay, what did I just read? And it reads, therefore, 
If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion fulfill my joy, that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind regarding one another is more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. I'm going to break this down a little bit. If there is any encouragement in Christ, fulfill my joy. If there is any consolation of love, fulfill my joy. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, fulfill my joy. If there's any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy. That you think the same way. All of these things so that you think the same way. You think the same way. You have one heart and soul. That's what we talked about just a little while ago. All of these remaining steps through this. Being united in spirit. One heart and soul. Thinking on one purpose. One heart and soul. Doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory. That's one heart and one soul. With humility of mind regarding one another is more important than yourselves. One heart and one soul. And not merely looking out for your own personal interest, but for the interest of others. Unity. One heart and one soul. And then you can jump over to 1 John 3.17. It says it in much simpler terms. But whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? You see your brother in need, and you turn your heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? The unity of these believers is shown in their sharing of material resources with the needy among them. True poverty has been eliminated. As needs arise, the believers who own property sell them, bring the money to the apostles so that the needs of the poor can be met by the new church. The selling of land and houses is actually more sacrificial than giving a tithe in that time. Not many people really own land then. This speaks of their true reliance upon God rather than man, their personal belongings for security. And then the verse goes on to say they bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. Laying the proceeds at the feet of the apostles is understood to be a sign of submission. But don't get me wrong here. It's not submission to Peter. It's not submission to any one apostle. It's not, permit, it's not submission to all of them collectively. This is submission to the Lord Jesus Christ through the teaching of the apostles because the Holy Spirit is indwelling within them. And it's at this point that the apostles must have been in charge of distributing the funds. And we see later on in the book of Acts this duty was given to the deacons, but we haven't done that yet here. 
So the apostles are having to take care of this themselves. And we must understand that nowhere, nowhere does the scripture indicate that these giving believers sold everything that they owned and then lived in the streets as one of the needy. It doesn't say that. I'm going to give everything I've gotten and I'm going to move behind the dumpster over here with my brother. That's not what happened here. The implication here is that these givers lost any claim to holding any kind of excess. They lived meagerly. The excess of belongings they had, and they sold their stuff. We talk about land in an example here in a minute. But if you read through some of the other verses, even back in chapter 2, it's belongings. And they sold their stuff to provide to those who had needs. And how do, how do I know they didn't live as one of the needy? How do I know that? Well, if you go reading on through Acts, you'll see in chapter 10, 12, 21, that these people lived in their own houses. And they would open their houses to the needy. And they would welcome the apostles in when they returned. Verse 36 and 37. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian. Am I saying that right, Cyprian? It's from Cyprus. How's that? Birth, who was also called Barnabas, Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a field, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. <clears throat> the selling and sharing of resources is now pictured in a specific example. Barnabas is introduced in verse 36, and he's going to be a prominent figure as we go through the book of Acts. This is his first introduction that Luke does very well. There are other people that he introduces kind of subtly here or there. And then before you know it, they're one of the main figures in the, in the writings. But Barnabas, he is a man of encouragement. Not only is he encouraging through his giving, Barnabas, you're going to see later, whenever Paul, Saul is con converted, becomes Paul, and he's trying to join the apostles. He's trying to come into that group, into that teaching. Who was standing there when they were all skeptical to say, no, this conversion is genuine. This man is real. Barnabas. When Paul went on his first missionary journey, who went with him? Barnabas. Where did that journey start? At Barnabas' house. Barnabas is going to be a prominent figure as this goes by. So don't forget that name. Barnabas was a Levite from Cyprus. He may have been one of the Levites who never actually served at the temple in Jerusalem. But as a prominent Jew from the dispersion, he was uniquely placed to become a mediator between the Gentiles and the Jews. And an encourager of the Gentile mission. We have to believe that Barnabas was likely a man of some wealth, simply from knowing he was a landowner at that time. But here's something that really 
struck me. Barnabas, too, lays the proceeds from selling his field at the apostles' feet. Who are the apostles? These are men who have nothing. These are men who have had so little in their lives. They were fishermen. They were among the poor themselves. These are men whom these people don't know in most of the, for instances. But yet, I'm selling what I have and I'm laying at their feet because I believe in Jesus Christ and these men are representing him and I trust them. You ever think about that? A man of wealth crossing that cultural divide and laying the money at the feet of someone who's never had anything for the furtherance of the needy people, for the furtherance of the new church. I once overheard a conversation with a, with a guy that was making a statement to another guy, and I'm going to leave everybody nameless here. And he was saying something, hey, you know, at my church, I just don't put much money in that offering plate. I don't trust those people with that money in it. I don't know. If you don't trust the people that are leading the church and being a brand new elder standing here saying this brings me no pleasure. But if you don't trust the people that's leading the church, you've got two options. Number one, you can pray that God will open your heart and allow you to build that trust. Number two, you need to go find a church where you can find somebody trustworthy. That's the two options you have. The offering made by Barnabas was apparently not a public offering necessarily. It could have been, I guess. Most likely it's a private offering. It probably went into what they would call a common fund. We have a fund like that here, a benevolence fund that we help people in need. And when needs arise, we're able to help those people at that point in time. Barnabas, we go, when we go into chapter 5, we're going to, and I'm going to get into Barnabas a little bit more here, but we're going to see the opposite of Barnabas in chapter 5. We see Barnabas giving. No doubt telling the apostles, look, I'm, I've sold this piece of land. Here's, what it, here's all that it brought. Please, put that in that fund to help the poor. Please. And we're going to see in chapter 5 people who don't behave exactly that way. And it's believed that the apostles gave Barnabas this nickname. And it even leans that way in the scripture. It says, uh, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles. His given, his given name was Joseph. Joseph was a very common name in that day. Had three boys in my house at the same time. 
and all of them had a long A with four letter names. Jake, Nate, Gabe. You get into the middle of something and you say, hey, Nate. And Gabe comes in, yeah, what do you, what do you need? No, I said Nate. Oh, I, I, well, you got more than one person named Joseph. You can have some confusion there. They gave him this name Barnabas, maybe to help relieve some confusion with other Josephs that were there. But in this day and time, when you received a nickname like that, that was almost a sign of respect, a sign of honor that you were given a nickname like that. And Barnabas gave from his heart. Barnabas gave out of love and concern for needy people among the believers. He did not want to bring attention to himself. He's just given for the simple reason of giving. And this narrative concerning Barnabas is used to encourage those with wealth to cross those cultural divisions, to help take care of those in need. One could say that he was a bit of a role model for the readers of Acts. It's very likely he was a role model for those people in that day when this was happening. In the summary of these verses, we see the main theme being that the new church, before doing hardly anything else, they took care of those within their group that had physical needs. There was no poor among them. In chapter 2, verses 44 and 45 is the place that we first saw this. And people with some level of means were voluntarily divesting their belongings, selling off what they had, giving that money to the apostles, the leaders of the new church, so the funds could be distributed to the poor. As the needs arose, the new church had no building. There was no electricity in that day. Running water was not an option. Their services were held in the temple that was run by the Jewish leaders. Can you imagine having a church of 10,000 people and invading the church down the road to have your service in? I mean, that's what's happening here. The Christians are going into the Jewish temple and holding their service. We have to go down there and bust down the doors of the Roman Catholics one day. You want to? Never mind. Sorry. Their main priority was to take care of the poor among them. Between the signs and the wonders and the love they showed in taking care of the poor, the curiosity of the citizens of Jerusalem must have been raised. <clears throat> so what are we supposed to give today in our society to support the local church, to support the needy congregation? Yeah, I'm going to wait out in this. Bear with me. I think it was R.C. Sproul told a little joke about a $100 bill talking to a $1 bill. And the $100 bill looked at the $1 bill and said, I have been all over this nation. I've seen the coastlines of California. And I've seen the beaches of North Carolina and the Outer Banks. I've seen the shores of the Great Lakes. And I've been to the Florida Keys. I've had politicians and actors Kings and queens have held me in their pocket. I've been all over the place and I've done all kinds of things. And the dollar bill said, well, you know, that's really good. I've never done anything quite like that. But I'll tell you what I have done. He said, I've been put in a plate 
at a church every Sunday for the last 10 years. Think about it. What are we supposed to give today? So I'm just going to go ahead and get this discussion behind us. Tithe is a word that many people are aware of. It's used to describe like a free will offering of 10% of your gross income. I can go into the Old Testament and probably spend an hour and a half going through what a tithe is, and I don't think that's really necessary right now. I don't think that's the point here. I can, I can point at several churches, not far from here, that don't believe anything in the Old Testament, but they'll tell you you're supposed to tithe. <laughs> you better put that 10% of your gross in the plate. But it's not strictly mandated in the New Testament, is it? It's not what it says. Turn with me if you will. And I usually just read these, but I want you to turn with me here. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. And when you get there, look up at me and I'll, I'll move on. Chapter 9, verse 7. All right, looks like most people are here. Now listen. Now this I... <clears throat> sorry, wrong one. God loves a person who gives their 10% with a smile on their face. Is that not, hmm? That's not what it says? What, ver, what version are you all using? No, that's not what it says. It's meant to be funny. Shouldn't disrespect the word like that. 2 Corinthians 9, let's start at verse 6. Now this I say, he who who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows with blessing will also reap with blessing. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace abound to you so that in everything, at every time, having every sufficiency, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Cheerful giver. Sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. Sows with blessing, reap with blessing. You may have an abundance for every good need. That does not say give a little extra in the offering plate and you get a Mercedes Benz or the, the pastor will have an airplane. It says you will have an abundance, an amount, for every good deed. To do more good deeds. Right? Any way you read this verse, it appears to me that we should give cheerfully from the heart. Knowing that the more of our incomes that we can dedicate to the Lord the more we can see in blessings. We have to make sure our blessings are aligned with the will of God. You can't just say, oh, I want to see a blessing of I'm going to live in a big house on a hill. 
That's not the way this works. Implied in this is the idea that if you give because you feel like you have to, grudgingly, your blessings will be void. Don't give grudgingly. That's what it says. But if you want to give and are willing to commit financially to the ministry of Christ, you will be blessed. If you do it because Josh stands up here and he says, well, you, you, we got to have some money and, and you need to put some money in the plate. He goes, well, you know, so better put some money in there. Josh said, oh. Or if you're putting money in there saying, you know, if I didn't have to put this money in the offering plate at the church, I could go over here and I could do this and I could have It's not where you need to be. God gave his son for you. Give a little back. That's all it's saying. Do it cheerfully because the price has been paid already. It's all coming from him anyway. The main thing is to be happy about supporting Jesus' bride, Jesus' people, doing for the poor, doing for the needy. The people are voluntarily giving what they could give to support the church's efforts in providing to the poor among this family of believers this new church. This desire comes from love for others that they can only come from a regenerated heart. Where else is this desire going to come from but from God? I could have spent this on anything I wanted to. But I put it in the offering plate at the church. I helped this family down the road. I did this thing. What are you all even doing here on Wednesday night? You could be anywhere. But you're here. You're giving your time to come in and to learn and to hear. That comes from a regenerated heart. That comes from a desire to know him more. And it sounds quite familiar, Matthew 22, verse 36 to 40. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the great and the foremost commandment. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Up here, love God. And right up here beside of it, maybe just a little bit below it, love your neighbor as yourself. Second one is like unto it. Galatians 6.10 states, So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially to those of the household of the faith. So I'm a firm believer that this church needs to give to those people in need, especially if they're a part of this body especially if they're a believer in Christ. The church is dependent upon God to provide these resources, and he primarily does that through us. So I want to change gears here just for a minute. I've spoken much about giving. Let's talk about receiving a little bit. Jesus did tell us that it's better to give than to receive in Acts chapter 20. 
Jesus didn't talk in Acts chapter 20, did he? Go there and look at it. I can't find it anywhere else, but one of the apostles says, Jesus said this, and I can't find it elsewhere. It's interesting. Someone in our family here at SRBC will need help at some point in time. And if that falls on any of you in this fellowship, please let us know. We can't help you if we don't know you have a need. Don't sit idly by and let your lights be turned off and then come to us for help. Let us know ahead of time. It's a matter of pride in some ways, but it's a matter of you're robbing this church of a blessing and being able to help you. Now, we can't go out and make new car payments for people. I'm sorry. But we might be able to help you sell your car. We might be able to help you find something a little more affordable to drive if we have to. We might not be able to pay your house off, but if you're really in a bind, helping for a month might be a good possibility. If you don't have food to eat, by all means, let us know. This church is all about food. Amen. And I, I say this lightly, but I'm saying it with sincerity too. You know, we do want to help. You are our family. These are my brothers and my sisters. Don't suffer alone. We want to help. We want to be a part of that. <clears throat> it may be you need repairs done. It may be that it's going to cost you $5,000 to get this plumbing work done. And there just happens to be somebody here that knows how to do some of that. It may be that your car is broken. And we can find somebody to help you with that maybe. Maybe your roof's leaking. We can find somebody to help with that. I come up with examples all day long. We just want to help. But you've got to let us know if you need it. And I give that sincerely. I don't know how many people you'd find behind a pulpit saying that out loud. But that's why we're here. We want to help if we can. So enough of my words. I want to go back to the original question. How much should I give? Let's look at some scripture and then I'll close. <clears throat> Proverbs 11, 24 to 25. There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who holds back what is rightly due and results only in want. W-A-N-T. The soul that blesses will be enriched and he who waters will himself be watered. Proverbs 28, 27. He who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. Malachi 3, 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this. This is one of the few places you'll find in the Bible anywhere that God says, put me to the test. Test me now on this, says Yahweh of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and empty out for you a blessing until it is beyond enough. <clears throat> Luke 6, 38. Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, 
For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And I read that verse, I can't help but think about a bag of potato chips, and I know I'm not supposed to eat them. Pressed down, shaken. You got this big bag, and you open it up, and it's pressed down, and it's packed, and you got all this empty space, but this bag of potato chips is running over. There's no wasted space in this bag. You could have used a box of cereal, but. The point of these verses are clear. Those who are able to be a blessing through giving and do this will be blessed in return. So there's a biblical explanation of how you should give. Let me offer you a logical one that's kind of biblical as well. The New Testament is laced with teachings that says the New Covenant is greater than the Old Covenant. The New Covenant benefits are greater than the benefits of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant said give 10%. If the New Covenant is even better, should we give more? I'm asking, I'm not telling. Should we? I had to preach this to myself before you all had to hear it. I'm sorry. Ultimately, the answer here is a question, according to the question of how much should you give, resides between you and God. If you can give more and you know God would have you do that, don't hold back. If you do not have the money to give or to give more, please don't. If you're in need, let us know. We want to help. We want to be that family. We want to have that unity. I don't want there to be any poor among us. I don't know how possible that is, but it happened here with a brand new church. I have to think God will help us too. So in closing, we've spoken much about giving, giving, I spoke some about receiving, but I do not want you to forget that there's one who gave more than all of us collectively ever will. And God gave his son to hang on a cross that we wouldn't have to die and go to hell. Sinners like me can be saved and not have to face their own punishment. Christ took my punishment on that cross. And I'll, I'll, I'll never know how to show my gratitude for that. Paul talks about being the chief among sinners. It was my responsibility for a long time to run a close second. But yet his mercy found its way to me. And I'm standing up here doing this. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. I don't know how sweet the sound is tonight. But man, that grace is amazing. I'm so thankful. Please listen to what I've said tonight. Don't rob yourself of a blessing. Don't put yourself through any extra suffering. 
If we can help, please let us know. And if you have needs tonight concerning salvation, concerning your edification, your membership at the church, any things of that nature, please see Josh, Jason, myself. We would love to talk with you. We would love to see people come to repent and believe. We'd love to see our church grow. We want to see you grow. And I thank you for your attention. Let's pray. Holy Heavenly Father, I, I hope that your word has been honored tonight. I hope that you have been glorified. And, and Lord, I thank you for all that you have done for me personally. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the blessings that you placed in all of our lives. And I thank you most of all for Jesus Christ. It's through him whom it's his name. He's the only one, the only way that we can have salvation. Father, once again, I just want to tell you that I love you. And thank you once again for all you've done for us. And I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's children said, amen.